just a heads up for anybody tuning in to the show for the first time. You're currently listening to part two of a two-part episode featuring Rachel Den Hollander. So if you haven't heard the first half of the discussion, go back to the last episode and listen to that, and this will make a lot more sense. Also, the topic is sexual abuse, so if that's a sensitive topic for you, discretion is advised. Something that a lot of people don't realize about abuse survivors is that a significant number of them actually physically freeze when they experience abuse. And that's a body's normal response to trauma. They can't move. They can't call out. They can't do anything at all. And so when you have a pastor who, for instance, counsels the abuse survivor, well, the Bible says you have to cry out and misuses that to say, well, if you didn't fight back, you're culpable. What that does is that tells the survivor that was my fault. I am under judgment. Welcome to Undiscussed, the show where we talk about things Christians should talk about, but often don't. This week we discuss sexual abuse with Rachel Den Hollander. What would you say to someone who said, you know, once we go down this path, what are we going to find? It's a little bit of a Debbie Downer. It's a distraction to our like exciting exhortation ministry and our like, you know, it'll, it'll, beautiful, it'll mess with our vibe. Um, We're doing it. things are going so well. Why would you want to? I know that's a kind of a naive question, but I feel like that would be a concern. That's at least a reflex of, of everybody who like. Oh, hears absolutely. Something. Yeah, I, I would say that's that's not your job. Yeah, your job is not to have a good, happy vibe in your church. Your job is to pursue the truth. Your job is to pursue God's glory and God's goodness. And that means that you deal with sin because you cannot, you cannot demonstrate and showcase God's glory and his holiness and his justice and his compassion and his mercy. You cannot give an accurate picture of who God is if you are not dealing with the darkness all around you, if you are not pursuing Christ, and if you are not committed to the truth and to what is right above and beyond anything else. Hmm. Amen. I want to record that and just be able to pretend it's coming out of my mouth (laughs) if only we had some recording devices on so that we could capture what she said yeah that was i absolutely agree with that and i'm i'm also curious just going back to this church that was such a good example um like what's what was different about them did they hold the same theological beliefs that other churches manipulated in order to um to perpetuate the silence on these issues or was it a a leadership thing where some the the person at the top had a correct biblical view of um of what they were responsible to do in cases of abuse what set them apart were they just humble i i'm genuinely curious about um do you know enough about their situation to comment on that or you know, only to a point, I can take what I see out of their public statement, and their public statement is uh, is very extensive. And so one of the dynamics that you see in the public statement really is a commitment to the truth, a commitment to what is right, and a recognition that as pastors and as a community of Christ, their job is to display Christ. Their job is not to uh, have a good vibe at the church. Their job is not to um, make people feel warm and fuzzy all the time. Their job is to minister to the sheep that God has given them and to display God's glory. Uh, and so the pastor even said in the public statement, you know, there will be temptation to say, why are we, why are we going to do this when we're in the middle of a, a, an incredible building program and all of these new things? And he said, I encourage you to resist that temptation because what God has called us to do is to minister to the hurting and to pursue what is right and to display God's glory. And we have to be humble and we have to be accountable 
Uh, and we have to pursue the truth in order to do that. And so he really took time to even instruct and shepherd his own congregation very graciously, very lovingly. Uh, but he had a he had a correct perspective uh, in terms of a biblical view of authority. And he used his authority as a pastor to teach and to protect and to instruct, but then submitted the church to other God-given authorities uh, and, and God-given accountability uh, to find the truth and to better reflect God's glory. Uh, so it's, it's an incredible picture, uh, really, of those, uh, those God-given means of the community of Christ and biblical authority uh, being used to protect and to shepherd rather than to hide and destroy. Yeah, I would I would encourage anybody to go and even read that post and read their statement. We can put it in the in the show notes just uh, as an example of how um, it was it was encouraging to me. I mean, talking about this issue, researching it, looking up how rampant it is, it it just it makes your heart so heavy and it makes you feel like there's no hope and you can't change anything. And because it's like you know entire institutions with ideologies that you like you have to um, you have to like impact rather than just even individual individual people it just seems a little bit too difficult but reading that statement gave me a little bit of hope and it lightened my heart a little bit and made me realize oh there like there there is hope like um change can happen and i i'd love to oh do you have something yes you know and i think one of the things that pastors need to realize when they're in that position you know there's always a fear of well what if what if this gets out publicly and what they need to realize is that the more public their right response is the more god is glorified because survivors everywhere are looking for where is this safe And when they see a church handle things uh, in a way that makes it look like God doesn't really care that much about sexual abuse, or like there is no accountability, like there is no form of biblical authority, uh, what that communicates uh, to the survivors is that this isn't a big deal to God. And if it's not a big deal to God, God's not safe, and God's not trustworthy, and the church is not safe. And so a church's poor response to sexual abuse communicates uh, across of such a broad spectrum, the reach is far greater than a pastor realizes when they mishandle claims of sexual abuse. Conversely, when a church like this uh, publicly handles it well, the the amount of encouragement and glory it brings to God far beyond their own church uh, it is way beyond what they could ever comprehend. Yeah, I, I've often wondered whether people try or churches try to suppress this kind of thing because they somehow believe that you know, the public knowing that their church is flawed and that there are sinful people in their church would, that fact would diminish God's glory. But it's funny that it's the exact opposite of that in just like acknowledging sin and calling it out. Like that's what glorifies God. And I love the quote that you, like that you've uh, used many times is that when you diminish the darkness, you actually uh, diminish the light as well. Yeah, that's exactly what happens. And it, and again, it sends the message that you know, that God doesn't really care about sin. And instinctively, we know that a judge that doesn't care about what went wrong is not a good judge, is not a loving judge, is not safe, uh, is not trustworthy, and isn't right. Uh, and so, the, you know, one of the most powerful things that Christians can do is, is preach the justice and the wrath of God against sin, because that's what communicates uh, how beautiful and how holy and how trustworthy God is. Uh, and it also, it also showcases God's love and the gospel in a completely different way, because when you understand God's wrath against sin, you understand what you've been forgiven of, too. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to uh, maybe look at a couple of more, uh, a couple more um, positive spots and, and people in your life that were actually, um, that were like illuminated the darkness a little bit. There's so many examples of wh- how not to do things. You could just 
open like a news, uh, I don't know, website up and you can see, you know, how churches are, are handling it poorly. Um, but I'm sure being in a Christian community, there, there have been people um, that have spoken uh, like truth and wisdom and the beauty of the gospel into your situation and have been an encouragement and a light um, to, uh, um, to what you've experienced. So um, who are some of the people in your life that, uh, that really spoke uh, God's truth um, to you and encouraged you in these times? Yeah, God has been really gracious uh, in that regard. You know, I was very blessed to be raised with godly parents uh, who took the abuse that I suffered seriously when they learned of it uh, and who really did point me uh, to Christ, who portrayed uh, biblical humility uh, just in their parenting, uh, who portrayed biblical love, biblical repentance, uh, you know, all of all of those dynamics that really showcase the goodness and the glory of God and that, that gave me a foundation uh, for being able to heal and to trust God again. Um, we were, I was very blessed uh, in my husband, you know, and it, just his, his incredible tender compassion, uh, his pursuit of justice with me, uh, his support uh, of, of the gifts that God has given me and his joy and how God has been able to use them. You know, he, is, he has been a safe place to grieve. Um, and, and to understand the depth of the damage and to face the depth of the damage with me uh, and to let it point me back to Christ. We have been very blessed uh, in our home church in Michigan Reformed Baptist Church of Kalamazoo and our current church here in Louisville, Reformed Baptist Church of Louisville, uh, to have godly men in authority, godly pastors, godly elders, and an incredible community of believers in both of those churches that really just surrounded us with prayer and with compassion uh, that asked really good questions, you know, very practical things. How are you sleeping at night? Are you able to get rest? How are things going with parenting when you're under this much stress? You know, that, that really thought about the weight that we were carrying and that ministered to us in incredibly practical ways. Uh, I came home from the preliminary examination, which was just an incredibly stressful time. And my siblings had cleaned our house and our church family had filled our fridge with groceries. You know, they provided for us and demonstrated God's grace and God's compassion and God's love in incredibly practical, tangible ways. Uh, and, and just encouraged us in our, in our godly pursuit of justice that this matters, that this was a good thing, this was a biblical thing. Uh, you know, they've cried with us, they've surrounded us. Uh, and so when you see the body of Christ in the gospel, living out those truths, it is, it is incredibly beautiful. And my heart's desire is for other survivors to know those truths and to be surrounded that way in their own churches because that brings God incredible glory uh, and it's incredibly healing for the survivor. Wow. <laughs> it is beautiful. I'm <laughs> Yeah, just the practical the practical means of loving someone. It, it's just it can be under undervalued or underappreciated how much like just filling a fridge full of groceries can be in just a small steps and I, I appreciate that you gave those examples uh, because I, like I mentioned earlier, it can feel overwhelming uh, when you're one person in this, this world, this country, this continent, whatever, battling what seems to be like really systemic and deeply rooted and trying to shake people out of their like, like theological strongholds that, that they manipulate to, to perpetuate this kind of thing. It can feel defeating, but when, when you hear that, you know, there's just small things that you can do to love somebody in those situations and to be a safe place and to care about their practical needs, um, just like wondering how they're sleeping, wondering how they're eating, wondering how their, their family's going, and, and cleaning a house uh, <laughs> can be such a practical way, way to help. Well, and you, you, you come across to me just from some of the things I've read on Facebook and videos and 
such that you seem like a very strong, composed woman, but it's beautiful to hear too, just a supportive husband, a supportive church, that you're getting what you need, that you say that like God is gracious and you're getting the support that you need in order to yeah, yeah use this platform. It has, it has been incredible. It really has been. And it has displayed God's goodness and God's glory to us uh, just beautifully through a very difficult trial. And you know, I think the thing that's most incredible about that is that both of these churches have the right perspective. They have a very healthy view of authority. They have a healthy view of community. They have a healthy view of uh, God's justice. And so what, what we were doing and what we were going through mattered to them. They saw it as a biblical pursuit. Um, they saw it as something that was important. They saw it as something that they wanted to support. Uh, and, and by doing that, the way they have glorified God and the way they have loved and cared for us, and even just the encouragement that that has been to other survivors uh, who I have shared that with, um, you know, again, the, the reach of what they have done is so much greater than they realize, even in the simplest acts, because of how they thought about it, because of their theological views, because of their mindset towards abuse and towards abuse survivors. And I just, I praise God for them. I'm just constantly thinking as I go through this about those statistics about how they're how they're so rampant 25 to 40 percent I it makes it makes me sad and uh, kind of almost feel guilty that there are people that I know that have suffered um, and that I'm oblivious to or that I've just not been able to recognize it and like brothers and sisters in my church that have just um, like suffered in silence uh, and I I'm trying to work out how how I can help like how how can someone like me as a as a man in the church who probably is completely oblivious to maybe some obvious signs or some not obvious signs uh what are some practical steps that that um like a guy like me in a church could do to uh to better make himself uh, available to be encouraging to to let people know that like I am a safe person to talk to yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, the the thing with abuse survivors is there are often not real obvious uh, signals. One of uh, one survivor that I know kind of refers to it as flipping a switch. You can flip that switch and you can appear normal uh, for the context that you need to, uh, because that's safer. If if you allow yourself to be seen as hurting, uh, or you allow uh, some of that damage to be seen, you become vulnerable. Again, you've given someone access to you, and so survivors are very good at flipping the switch at appearing very composed, very calm, um, and, and not giving off any signals at all because it makes them more vulnerable if they do. Uh, and so the best thing really to do is to be able to signal in how you behave and in how you communicate that, hey, this matters. Uh, you know, social media is actually a relatively powerful tool for advocacy just for opening up the lines of communication. You know, you post on what you care about, right? So your Facebook, your Twitter, uh, you know, are, are you posting on issues that matter? In a, in a godly, healthy way? Are you posting on issues that matter? Uh, because if someone sees you start advocating, it, it makes them realize, okay, wait a minute, they care about this. They're starting to understand. Um, you know, and so using even those means of communication, you know, approaching church leaders and saying, hey, what are, what are our policies? Do we have a ministry to abuse survivors? How are we reaching out to these people? You know, if you had 25% of your congregation that was suffering from cancer, you would have a cancer ministry. If 25% of your congregation was in abject poverty, you would have a ministry you know, to, to those members. Well, 25% of the congregation is suffering devastating wounds that they are never going 
to disclose, but that will continue uh, to damage them until they reach healing. But we have nothing for them. There's no ministry for them. There's nothing signaling that there's a safe place. And so just looking at very practical steps like that in how you communicate and how you advocate and how you use social media and how you discuss these topics, uh, you know, that makes a big difference. And then, and then looking at practical ways within the church community to signal to survivors uh, that, that they're safe and that they can come forward and that there's help for them. Those are all very important things to begin doing because they're not going to speak up until they see those signals first. Yeah, I think that's the important point that I didn't realize until sort of exploring this world that it's victims are are silenced. The very nature of sexual abuse is a silencer. It's 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 covered in shame and they there's no they have no they're depleted. They can't come forward. Yeah. And just knowing that fact alters how you view the the whole issue. Yeah, they really have to be pursued. And that they are watching, is this safe? Is this a safe place? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, the, and those dynamics are really very true for domestic abuse survivors too. Abuse in any context. When you've experienced trauma, uh, your, your perception of what's normal and what's safe is going to be radically altered, and you're not going to speak up until you know that you're safe. And so those are principles that really cross the trauma spectrum in general. After the break, Rachel talks strategy for helping those who have been abused and how God can work in any scenario. This episode is brought to you by P2C Plus, an annual student conference in Toronto. What makes this conference different than any other conference you hypothetically ask right now? Well, I'm here to tell you. With TED Talk inspired keynote messages, a New Year's Eve countdown party, and more workshops than you can shake your Bible at, P2C Plus is one of the best ways you could choose to spend the last few days of 2018. This year, the theme is new, and we'll be focused on what it means to be a new creation in Jesus. For more information, go to p2cplus.com. That's p2cplus.com. Yeah, even as a, a guy, I know my brain is a little bit, um, well, not not all, all men's brains are messed up or miswired or whatever, but when, like, when... When someone uh, tells me about a problem, my, my solution is like, oh, like I got to fix it or like, here's how you should fix it. And it, it comes up most often when like I hear about my friends being like harassed, uh, um, like you know, a cat called or like someone saying something or doing something that just makes them uncomfortable. And then I'm like, well, what'd you do? Like, did you, did you hit them? <laughs> like, yeah, cause you should have punched them in the throat or like, did you tell somebody? And they so often just say like, I didn't, I didn't do anything. I didn't know what to do. Like I, I felt powerless and like my, my brain is like, oh, like why you, just do something, just like speak up. And it's something that I'm trying to, to train my brain to, to not get like, you know, upset that they didn't act in that scenario um, the way that I would have preferred them to act or the way that I want to act and trying to build like an empathy and understanding for, uh, for what it's like to even be in that situation. Cause I think I'm just not aware of what it's like. Yeah. And that's, that's a huge aspect is just educating yourself to what it's like. You know, something that a lot of people don't realize about abuse survivors is that a significant number of them actually physically freeze when they experience abuse. And that's a body's normal response to trauma. They can't move. They can't call out. They can't do anything at all. And so when you have a pastor who, for instance, counsels the abuse survivor, well, the Bible says you have to cry out and misuses that passage of scripture, which is talking about, well, was it a consensual activity? You know, but misuses that to say, well, if you didn't fight back, you're culpable. What that does is that tells the survivor that was my fault. I'm, I'm under judgment. When in reality, what they experienced was a very normal physical response of being incapable of fighting back. 
you know, and, and even when it comes to being harassed and catcalled, the ultimate reality for, uh, for many people that experience that women in particular is that the more attention you give it, the more vulnerable you become. You never know when someone's going to escalate. And so a lot of times there's just, there's not a way to be safe. There's not a way to defend yourself. And it, it puts you in a, in a very terrible situation. Yeah. I think the Me Too uh, movement has helped to bring some light on that for women too, that it's like all women are just watching, looking out, like looking over their shoulder. Yeah, it's just, and they not even consciously, mm-hmm. it's just, a, it's it's just, just ingrained. ingrained. Yeah. yeah, it's just ingrained. And even when women do speak up, a lot of times, again, they're blamed for it. You know, I, I had a good friend during this process who posted something on Facebook about how she had been catcalled. Um, by someone while she was waiting for the bus and her newsfeed immediately, her, her um, comment section immediately filled up with men. Well, maybe you were overreacting. Why didn't you just smile? Why didn't you just respond to him? Like, do you, do you have any real, any idea the danger that she could have been in if she had, if she had fought back against the cat calling when he had already escalated because she didn't respond to him the first time? You know, I had an experience during this, two of them actually, during this process where I was sexually harassed, uh, once while I was counseling an abuse survivor and once while I was out for coffee uh, with my husband and he was facing the opposite direction so he couldn't see what was happening. Uh, but a man came into the coffee shop and began to masturbate towards me. And so I sent him a quick email to let Jacob know what was going on. But in my situation, I was already in the news so much uh, and I was already being accused of sexualizing everything. I wasn't in a position to be able to fight back. I already knew there was nothing criminal being done. There was nothing to report to the police. So I immediately went and reported to the coffee shop so that they could watch out to the man. But there was nothing I could do about that situation. But the immediate response I got is, well, did you enjoy it? Maybe you enjoyed being the object of his desire. Maybe there was that little bit in you and that's why you didn't think to fight back. And that came from some extended family members. That's appalling. Yeah. That is. I can't believe that. And Disgusting. So, right. And so women, it is. And so women are in a position where it's not safe to fight back. It's not safe to speak up because you never know when that's going to cause escalation. And when you do speak up more often than not, you're blamed anyway. So why bother? It causes more damage to speak up because of the response that you receive than it causes to just be quiet and try to get out of that situation as fast as you can. Yeah. I think that's something that I've taken away from this just in the, in the past couple of uh, months or like the year overall is just like, just to believe people. Cause I, again, I've been the same the same mindset of like someone catcalling and I'd be like, just like, I would actually like yell back or, you know, escalate it probably, but not understanding the mindset or just believing that it doesn't happen as much, uh, as much as it does. And it's just, it's just a default mindset that I think a lot of guys have that it's like, Oh, it couldn't be like, it couldn't be that bad. Cause it's not my experience. Like I, like I, a guy is like, Oh, if a, if a girl, you know, said something like that to me, I'd be happy with it. So there's this weird twisted, um, like, they apply it to women too and say, Oh, then like, like, why don't you enjoy it? Like, I wish women complimented me or just smile. Um, but it's just, just, just believing that like it happens, we don't like it and we want it to stop, um, is hopefully like, um, helpful at least a a little bit in just sympathizing. I was going to say too, I wonder your thoughts on this, Rachel, like it is a human nature thing to do to project your experience on a situation. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And if, if it is such a hidden, but such a prevalent issue, not the necessarily talking about the um, harassment and catcalling, but sexual abuse, um, do you think that is an element that plays in it that people are just, well, I don't see it. I haven't heard a lot about it. So it must not be, you must be lying all these girls or whatever. Yeah, I think that's definitely part of it. And I think there's also, you know, there's also an imbalance in power 
you know, I understand that response from a male standpoint of, well, you know, a woman compliments me. I think that's great. We well, you beat you're not vulnerable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That woman can't do anything to you. And one of the most difficult things as a female with, particularly with our porn culture and our porn mindset is when a man verbalizes something like that, I know what he's doing in his head to me. And I didn't give him permission to do that. I didn't give him permission to think about me sexually. That's a violation. And it's a violation I can't control. You know, and so there, there is a difference in, um, in male-female sexuality. There's a difference in male-female power imbalance. Now, you do see women abuse men, and so I don't want to minimize that in any way, shape, or form because you see it, and it's incredibly damaging. Um, but for, the, for, for, for most men, they haven't experienced that. The statistics are still much higher than we realize, but the majority of men who have that, well, it's a compliment. What's the big deal response? They've never experienced being vulnerable. They've never experienced violation, uh, and their their outlook on sexuality is very different than a female's is, uh, and so it, you know again it, it's not the same experience, and there's not the same risk. There's not the same level of danger. Yeah, there, yeah, it just feels like there's there's much less at stake. So therefore, like you could see yourself um, responding. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I, I it doesn't doesn't seem like it should be so hard <laughs> It's just, Hey, if someone says something like they're probably telling the truth, like I can't think of too many reasons why, right. Like someone would, would lie about that. And just the, the attention thing is just such a Nobody mind boggling thing. Yeah. No like, one wants attention for that. Yeah. Nobody does. Um, you, you strike me as someone who is, uh, like this, despite everything that you've been involved in, involved in, um, not just the abuse, but like embroiled in, in the, like the legal proceedings and being, just being a, a spokeswoman for, um, for this and, and an advocate, you seem to, to be someone who has, has hope, who has like, uh, levity to her, um, who, who doesn't, you don't seem burdened, uh, as, as much as I would expect. Is, is that accurate? Are you like, are, are you, um, do you feel the weight of, of what you've, I guess, accidentally signed up for, or are you experiencing some sort of like joy and freedom through the gospel or maybe both? I think it's both. And I think you can't get away from it being both uh, because it is, it is very dark. There is a lot of damage. Um, you know, I still have a lot of damage. That's just the truth. Uh, I think I have, uh, by God's grace, been able to um, learn to grieve in a healthy way. Um, but there's a lot more there than people realize. Yeah, and, and it is. It is very heavy to be constantly immersed in so much destruction, uh, to be constantly attacked. Um, you know, just very simple things. Like the first, the first eight months, I had nightmares every single night every single night because I was just immersed in it. I had to relieve the details all the time. And I knew that would be part of coming forward because it just always is. Uh, But even in the 15 years prior, you know, a nightmare every month, two times a month, because it's just part of who you are. The damage is there. The memories are there. And they will pop up at times when you least expect because there are, you know, memories are funny things. They're tied to sights and sounds and emotions and smells. and, um, And so those memories can get triggered when you don't expect them to be triggered. And that's, that's something again, that a lot of people don't really realize when they're walking through, uh, through abuse with a survivor. Most survivors will experience very severe flashbacks to the point that they can't even keep a grasp on reality. Because what a lot of research has shown us is that, you know, if, if you, if you think of just like a normal memory, the way it's stored and the way it's accessed in your brain is you, you almost kind of see it like it's coming across a video screen, like you're watching it. 
You know, so if you think of something that happened in your childhood, some kind of just neutral or a good memory, it's almost like watching a movie and you might have some emotion attached to it. You'll remember what you experienced and sensed, but traumatic memories are stored and accessed very differently. They're actually relived in the first person. And so like almost the same way as I guess the best way to, to explain it would be like a phantom pain. You know, someone who has been an amputee, they will feel quote unquote uh, pain in the limb that's been amputated, even though it's not there anymore because their brain has that memory with it. Their nervous system has that memory ingrained. Uh, and it's the same way with trauma. When you have damage that severe and those memories are triggered for many survivors, they're to the point that they actually re-experience the abuse. They re-feel it. Uh, one woman that I counsel would bite her tongue to try to feel something in her mouth other than her rapist genitals. It's very common for abuse survivors to keep sensory objects around like ice cubes, uh, things that are intensely cold or that are very textured so that they can try to bring themselves out of those memories. And that, that's, that's not volitional. Oftentimes they can't even anticipate it happening because something will happen that triggers that memory that they weren't expecting and all of a sudden they're just immersed in it again. And so for, for anyone that's been through any kind of trauma, they're constantly reliving those things. Uh, and so it really drastically affects their life and it affects their outlook on life and it affects their ability to engage with the world around them uh, because those memories can be triggered at any point and they're very difficult to walk through. And probably not even just that, the storyline for your life, like I, I, yeah. I imagine for you, or I saw a video that you had done where you have a daughter who's quite athletic or, you know, yes. and thinking about gymnastics and knowing the culture that's there. It's like your, your framework for understanding what your children should do, what they should be exposed to is drastically shaped by your experience. Of, yeah. It's very different. You've yeah. seen the dark side of humanity and you know, that innocent things aren't always innocent. Yeah. How do you keep from falling headfirst into that, that cynicism? I think the, the biggest key really is to, is recognizing that darkness and light exist in opposites. And the darkness is there and we don't pretend it's not there. We acknowledge it in all of its ugliness and in all of its horror. And we say, look at this is what sin does. Sin destroys. Satan destroys. It's horrific. Don't do this. You know, and that's, that's what I tell my kids. You know, obviously they're a little bit young to know uh, the depth of what we're walking through. But that's a message that I want them to understand is, you know, when, when someone is hurt, when they do something that is sinful and it hurts someone around them, where they suffer the consequences, that's what I tell them. Look at how awful sin is. Look at how terrible this is. It destroys, it ravages everything, it hurts everyone around you. This is what Satan wants for you. So run the opposite direction. Run to Christ. And when you remember that, you can grieve the darkness and you can grieve the depth of the damage because it points you to God's goodness and God's glory and that eternal hope of perfect redemption. Yeah, ha having the, the the space and the permission to grieve um, seems like, yeah. Well, can you share a little bit, Mom, about your your healing journey um, and and where you're at on that now? Yeah, um, like most abuse survivors, I did the whole "I'm fine" thing for a long time. I'm fine. I don't need to deal with it. I don't need to deal with it. Uh, and I was very blessed to have a mother who was an abuse survivor herself. Uh, and she finally came to me when I was sometime around 17 and she said, you're not, and you have to deal with it. And if you don't deal with it, it's going to destroy you. So we're moving your bedroom downstairs so that you have privacy and here's a journal and here's how it's really good to start journaling. And, you know, just kind of walked me through that process in a way that, uh, gave me space and gave me privacy, um, both practically and physically. 
but also gave me the support and the push that I needed uh, to not just bury it anymore. Um, and so, you know, it was years of working through that and just unpacking the damage and learning, you know, learning to trust again. Uh, but that really formed the foundation uh, for just healing in general. And I'm very grateful to have re reached a really good place of healing uh, before coming out against Larry. You know, my husband was very instrumental in a lot of that as well. So God's been very kind to surround me with people who have helped me through that journey. Um, you know, and, and just even recognizing what healing looks like. Healing doesn't mean that the scars aren't there. And it doesn't mean the damage isn't there. It means you know what to do with the pain. That's really encouraging. Maybe for someone who is uh, trying to learn how to heal uh, and has experienced something like this and doesn't know what step to take, um, is just kind of in it at the moment and, and can't see can't see any anything good. How, what would you what would you say to them, or how would you encourage them to to pursue a healing journey um, properly? Yeah, I think I do think finding a good Christian counselor someone that can walk through those steps with you is really important. Uh, it was not something I had available to me, but I do see an incredible amount of value in it. And so that, that would be one of the first things I would say is find someone who's safe, who's skilled at walking through trauma so that they can walk that path with you. Um, but just even learning to express what happened, to be able to put words to it, to be able to put words to the damage that was done, to recognize uh, the lies that you've believed about yourself, uh, about God, uh, and to be able to confront those lies with the truth. You know, often survivors will develop um, unhealthy, even sinful coping mechanisms. Uh, and so being able to look at what are the lies that I've believed that's at the root of this destructive behavior, and how do I combat that with the truth? Uh, learning to grieve uh, and to be able to acknowledge the damage and to grieve it in a way that is not destructive. Uh, is incredibly important and I think really the foundation of healing uh, and to not try to shut yourself off from the darkness to not say well it's not that bad why aren't you over it yet you know it, it doesn't exist to speak the truth about it this is horrific this is evil it's very dark praise God for his hope for redemption for perfect healing in the end and to let the darkness point you towards the light rather than trying to pretend it's not there seems to be the reflex just to ignore the pain um, mm. but until you lean into it, it's hard to see the beauty um, of the gospel and I think some of that for Christians has to do with a, a misunderstanding of or maybe a misapplication of God's sovereignty mm -hmm. and what it means that God works all things together for good he does and that's an incredibly beautiful biblical truth but a lot of times the way we apply that is well that was a terrible situation but God works it together for the good so let's look at all the good right and it completely sidesteps grieving the bad gets there too fast yeah and it's and i think it's i don't think that's quite what scripture means mm. you know god is able to take something that is incredibly dark and he redeems it right but you don't you don't see the beauty of that redemption if you've pretended that the dark isn't dark mm. or that or that god's goodness means it was all of a sudden a good thing the fact that it's you know sometimes you'll hear people say we should get to the point of thanking god for the abuse no, the abuse was evil. It will always be evil. I thank God that he brings justice for the abuse, that he restores from the abuse, uh, that in his perfect plan, he's using it for his glory uh, and to bring, to bring good to me and to those around me. Uh, but the abuse is evil, and I don't need to say otherwise. I want to go forever, but <laughs> <laughs> there's so much to talk about on this, this subject. And 
you're just you're full of uh, of wisdom, and uh, I'm just uh, I'm really thankful for just um, just the, the the part of your story uh, where you you do point people towards Christ and you illuminate the gospel by um, by acknowledging the darkness um, and for calling it out for what it is and for being an example um, to to people who have been uh, abused of what you can accomplish despite the fact that you you might you might risk certain things by um, by opening up. Um, but standing for something um, bigger than that, and uh, and trusting God will will work through it. Um, do you have any? I do. Any, I, any I just have one last question in my mind. It's actually going to help to shape my prayer um, for you. Not in this time. Just how I pray for it. <laughs> um, you've mentioned a few times that you have people that come forward, abuse survivors that are looking for counsel or or um, yeah, just reaching out to you. How do you manage um, recognizing that you want to be faithful to the call that God has given you in that area and also your, your being faithful to your family life and managing that sort of tension and discerning what to say yes to and what to... Yeah, that is, um, you know, that's something we're still really wading through, to be honest. The last two years have been incredibly intense because they've had to be, um, you know, just the, the amount of time that it took for me to push the case forward. I mean, there were, Jacob had to take days off of work. He had to take days off of his uh, studies at the PhD program so I could sit down with journalists and with investigators and go through the legal elements and the medical elements. And you know, it was just something that had to be done. Um, but we are past that point now, just very, very recently past that point. And so we are really prayerfully evaluating, um, just needing wisdom for how to balance that. Because if I neglect the children that God has given me, I'm, I'm missing what he's called me to do. Uh, and so our focus is, you know, is to be able to, you know, we're homeschooling our kids uh, and, and to be present for them and to be, um, to, to establish good, healthy routines, good, healthy family life, um, and to be able to prioritize them and our marriage uh, in the midst of ministry. And I think that's a tension anyone in ministry feels. Uh, but it's, it's very much something that we're, you know, that we need a lot of wisdom for. I think I have one one more question um, to ra- round off our time here. Uh, I think it's just particularly, maybe I'm just getting older and I'm more aware of the world. But as I as I grow and I, I think forward about having children, sometimes I I wonder like, man, this world sucks. <laughs> like it's so dark, and I'm like sometimes scared. Like, am I going to bring someone into this world that's going to experience like pain or suffering, like I have, or even worse than I have, and in your situation, you have three, you have one on the way, will be born again by, uh, by the time this podcast comes out. To me, when I, when I see a situation like that, that gives me hope. Children like, are, uh, like represent like hope and potential um, and just innocence and, and beauty. And I, I'm curious to know what your, um, what your hope and prayer is for your children uh, that will eventually grow up in a world um, maybe similar to this, maybe much worse, maybe, maybe better. Yeah, there is a, there's a lot of that we're still waiting through too, to be honest, because what it, what it means to trust God with my children uh, is something that I constantly wrestle with. It's a lot easier for something to happen to me, I think, as hard as it is, uh, than it would be if something happened to my children. Uh, and so that is, that is something that we actively, I in particular, actively wrestle with. Uh, my hope and my prayer, you know, first and foremost, is that my children are saved and that they find their joy and their hope in Christ and that they cling to him 
no matter what, because that's, that's all I've got. That is the only sure refuge for them and for their souls. And there's not much more I can pray for them beyond that. You know, there, there are lots of things that we would love to see um, God do with them, but we want them to love Christ and to be faithful wherever they're put. And if that means they're a janitor, to God be the glory. And if it means they argue in front of the Supreme Court, to God be the glory. Well, then that's our prayer for your uh, family as well. So thank you so much for, for, for coming and sharing with us and for just opening up uh, your life to the world and uh, just taking that on yourself, um, but being such a great example to everybody. It's a privilege to be here. Uh, I'm really happy that we got to talk. I feel encouraged. Um, and Suze, I know, I know you... Uh, have a big girl crush on uh, yeah, Rachel here. Definitely. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been great to be here. Yeah, we're so happy that you we could make this work and that uh, we could just learn from you, hear from you, the people that will listen to this. So I'm just praying even now in this moment <laughs> that it will bring healing and yeah. education and empowerment and yeah. Yeah. At minimum, I know at least I've learned one or two things. So like, that's a pretty good. That's pretty good <laughs> minimum. That's a good day's uh, day's work. That's a good day's work. Yeah. So this was great. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This episode of Undiscussed was produced by Patrick Erskine and Eric Humphrey. Editing done by Ben Skinner, and the music was produced by Ian Post. Wanderer provided the ad music. Go to p2c.sh undiscussed to find more episodes, show notes, and information about our podcast. That's p2c.sh undiscussed. Also, remember to subscribe if you like what you hear, and you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at undiscussedpod, all one word. If you've got feedback for us, don't leave it undiscussed. Next time on Undiscussed, we'll talk about career and money. When... You acknowledge God as the giver of all things, right? Giver of your talents, giver of your time, giver of your resources, including money. Um, That colors all of your decision-making. I think about how I use my time at work. I think about how I use my skills and try to marry those things up and saying, I'm gonna give the very best of what I've got for whatever God you desire, right? Understanding that there's a foundation of values that he has for my life and I simply have to live into those.